0: All right, we're live from Gray Zone headquarters in Washington, D.C., and from Madrid, where Michael Tracy is reporting live from the Permanent War Planning Conference of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is gathered to talk about escalating war, the proxy war in Ukraine, and to escalate in the important North Atlantic region of the South China Sea. Uh, and we also have Aaron Mate, the most prolific spreader of Syria disinformation on the planet, according to the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Uh, welcome, fellas. Sorry for being late, everyone.
1: For us, this hey, is pretty good. good. We were only two minutes late. That's pretty good for us.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, we're also on
1: spin. I've,
2: es- I've established a new gray zone bureau here in Madrid.
0: <laughs> Michael's our gray zone Substack correspondent. <laughs> Everyone at the gray zone except me has a sub stack. So apparently like anyone around the gray zone is just moonlighting for us now. But uh, we were just talking about Zelensky's shirt. I'm wearing my Zelensky shirt right now in case you couldn't tell. Um, and Applebaum, the neocon Washington Post correspondent was keynoting a gathering of international fact checkers, I think in, in Oslo. While Michael was in Madrid and she in her address pointed to Zelensky's green muscle shirt, his ubiquitous green muscle shirt as a sign of his honesty and decency. So I thought that in case anyone was prone to not taking me seriously or not believing me or considering me a proliferator of disinformation at an Aaron Maté level that I would wear this shirt. Um, anyway, I don't, know. I don't know about
2: you, but I tailor my clothing to ensure maximum seriousness. Like I want to convey yeah. my level of seriousness purely through my attire. That's
1: that's what I definitely am conscious of every day when I wake up in the morning. Quick flashback. Do you guys remember those articles in the New Yorker about Robert Mueller's tailored suits? Remember those? And like they would like analyze. I gotta his, his I gotta Brooks dig Brothers deep into neck. the memory hole to resurface that one, but I okay, I'm gonna have so, yeah. pull it up so we can look I at it so. again. It's so fun. Yeah, the New Yorker did a spread on Robert Mueller's Brooks Brothers attire and how it signified a deliberate. Right, I do remember Brooks. that. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Well, th- see, that's the that the, the three piece suit is the traditional means of conveying seriousness in, yes. in Western culture, and you have this tie that constricts blood to your head, so you're not too. <laughs> so creative that you'll stray from the linear mode of conceiving reality in a bourgeois democracy. And then you have to wear a dark suit. Uh, When Obama wore a light suit, it was considered unserious. Um, It's, but we're, you know, but then Zelensky has this new mode of seriousness where he's basically a celebrity uh, in, in, you know, the, the closest you can get to being a Ukrainian global celebrity the closest you can get to Hollywood, but he's dressed like he's about to spring into action and fight off a team of Russian Spetsnaz trying to break into the presidential palace and like whip out a machine gun. Um, I think that's kind of what he's trying to convey. And he has really tweaked the libidinal senses of many liberals, coastal liberals in the US in doing so.
2: Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's ever going to be a time where he'll return to the suit and tie because that was his typical get-up prior to the war. Like I yeah. remember watching in the pre-war period his press conferences where, interestingly, he would actually be reprimanding, I'm sure you guys remember this, he would be reprimanding the U.S. government and the U.S. media for what he would call excessive alarmism in their predictions that A war was forthcoming and you know that sort of maybe excessively shaped my perceptions during that stage of the likelihood of the war or maybe you know the veracity or lack thereof that should be ascribed to the U.S. government's and media's prognostications Um, but he was doing all those statements in a full suit yeah so uh, maybe he realized that maybe, uh, in, impeded his analytical acumen or something. And well, the only time he wore a suit prior
0: route. to that was impersonating a president and we can assume he'll, if he returns to suit or gets out of this green muscle tee, that it'll probably be in some golden parachute position, like teaching, um, performative military communications at the Tisch school of arts um so he's he's got he's gonna get hooked up after this is all over that's all i i can say
2: i feel like he's at a level so beyond just the typical sinecure that pretty much any you know ex-european official could probably get like even if Zelensky wasn't a global celebrity and had just been sort of an unremarkable head of state of ukraine for a couple years he could still probably get a relatively cushy sinecure at like the Kennedy School or something. But I feel like now he's way transcended that and there's no sinecure cushy enough for him. So they almost have, might have to invent a new kind of giveaway that could you know, satisfy the, the expanses that his ego and reputation have now kind of gone to.
0: It's a great point. And we got the article Aaron mentioned about Robert Mueller's style icon here. When, when Mueller actually uh, got on camera though, he was, it was more like a elder abuse victim. Uh, He could barely form a sentence. It was pretty sad. It was like Biden's entire presidency condensed into like an hour of testimony. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. Michael Zelensky is, he's, he's head and shoulders above all of the past Imperial stooges. Like Ernesto Zedillo, for example, he was the president of Mexico who passed NAFTA and shafted his country's middle class and spawned this massive migration crisis to the north. Yale gave him his own institute and he lives basically in a mansion on Yale's campus. But Zelensky's going to get something so much
1: bigger than that. We don't even know what it's going to be. Yeah. And even before the Russian invasion, it was already established that Zelensky and his uh his crew have a huge network of offshore accounts where they've stashed money. That are, that already came out in one of those uh, trove of leaked documents about financial Panama Papers. papers. Panama right. Papers, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm sure that that uh, windfall is going to massively increase after this war.
0: Definitely, uh, Michael, you are responsible, in my opinion, for one of the greatest trolls of NATO in my lifetime. So we're going to talk about that. Um, you actually got in a question to the Turkish President Recep Erdogan, and uh, obviously you're an Erdogan fanboy because you asked him a question. That's what I'm seeing on Twitter. Um, Turkish TRT, the Turkish state broadcaster, did a basically a special on you. Um,
2: yeah, yeah. I've uh, for years I've been waiting for that moment where I could express <laughs> my reverence for Erdogan that's
0: definitely what my life has revolved around up until this point. Well, I'm, I'm jealous. Um, but uh, we, I want to talk about that. But but first, um, I mean, just give us a kind of general, your general take on what you've seen so far at NATO. Um, you've been in Madrid. This is a rare opportunity for you to get credentialed and to actually pepper world leaders with questions and to be in the room. So what what have you been seeing there and what what's what's on the agenda
2: Yeah, so the summit's over at this point but I'm yeah still in the or what's been on the mention. agenda yeah. Sorry. um first off just sort of on a meta level because i'm working on an article about the media conduct that i observed because when i go to events like this i like to kind of be an anthropologist and analyze the herd behavior of journalists in the wild because they're always this very strange species And so the first thing that definitely struck me was the very fact that I was given accreditation at all, because frankly, I hadn't expected that I would. I thought it was just sort of a shot in the dark. Yeah. Back in March, I tried to go to what they then called an extraordinary summit that was convened urgently to address issues related to the Ukraine war. And I applied for admission and I went to Brussels and I was not just disallowed from attending, but ejected from the grounds of the Belgian Ministry of Defense. Um, and so I kind of figured that maybe that would have uh, tainted my ability to uh, go to any future NATO events, but lo and behold, they, they let me in. And I think it's because maybe they're at least attempting to nominally um, hold fast to this ideal that they're this exemplar of liberal democratic norms or something, and that includes freedom of the press. Um, Now, on the one hand, they do allow a fair number of journalists in. Like they set aside this giant media center within this vast, sprawling convention hall in Madrid. Um, And so there are rows upon rows of tables that some are specially designated for like CNN and Reuters and whatever and so if you if you get in there you feel sort of special you feel like you've really made it right because you're now um, afforded this ability to hobnob with some jet setting elites so it can be pretty exhilarating um I so I would imagine I don't know this for sure I didn't speak to every journalist there There's plenty that I couldn't speak to because of just the language barrier. I mean, they were inviting journalists from South Korea and all over the place. Um, Right. But I would think, I mean, based on what I saw, I I couldn't, I can't imagine that there was really anybody else other than me, or I would be surprised to learn if there was anybody else other than me who even had a slightly critical disposition toward NATO. I mean, just think about it. If you're going to expend the effort to... Travel internationally, most likely, unless you're you know, local in Spain. If you're going to you know, figure out how to get the plane ticket and get the hotel set up and maybe get your editors to approve the trip, which can be a fairly significant expense, um, if you're going to jump through all the hoops required to go to this summit as a journalist, chances are you're a journalist who already really thinks NATO is super cool, right? And you're not going to be somebody who's inclined... To question any of like the premises underlying NATO's rhetoric or even their existence, right? So, yeah. uh, it's a defensive
0: alliance—that's kind of yeah, just
2: all the Just, I, mean, I I'm sure all—I guarantee you—all the journalists were just as committed to this cliche that gets repeated over and over again that NATO is purely a defensive alliance. You know, I was in a press conference with uh, Boris Johnson on the final day. Which, I mean, was just kind of bizarre. Like, I mean, so what they allowed me really to sit in the front row with Boris facing me, like in the flesh. Um, I, again, sort of surprising. Uh, but Boris Johnson, as well as Biden, they both did these heavily choreographed and regulated press conferences. I mentioned this in that Turkish public broadcasting segment that I did. But, you know, Boris just listed all, you know, called on his mates that had already been predetermined based on a list of. Um, that he had carried with him at his staff assembled. you know. So he even froze out like channel four. Um, but the thing that I would have asked him if I could have posed a question was based on a statement that he made in his press conference remarks, which was reiterating this cliche that NATO is a quote, purely defensive alliance. And so I wanted to ask him, okay, you and others keep repeating incessantly that NATO is pur- purely a defensive alliance. But at the same time, you're trumpeting that the great triumph of this summit was that NATO has now expanded it to an entirely different region of the world. You're heralding that NATO is now fortifying its presence in the, quote, Indo-Pacific. And they all love to brag about how this was the first summit that they invited the heads of state or government from Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, and Japan to, to kind of demonstrate their commitment to this region of the world to counteract China, which they uh, castigated as malicious in this NATO strategy decree that they published. Um, So at the very least, how could you not acknowledge that NATO is expansionist? Because it's plainly expanding its remit. I mean, you're bragging about that. You're celebrating it. Yeah. So how, how does that square with this whole defensive alliance mantra? I didn't hear anybody put that question to any official at any point um sadly i was not able to do so with boris what, that's johnson. what you wanted
0: to ask boris johnson yeah i had the question yeah. ready to go yeah uh, Aaron. Um, i did put it to
2: uh, i did ask that question to the canadian minister of foreign affairs and she yeah. had a whole cliche laden response so at least i got to ask one inconsequential official about it um but i was just gonna say just to, on the media point just to sum up quickly You have to really sort of reframe your perception of what these NATO events really are. They're massive networking summits where elites from around Europe and North America and now even increasingly in the Indo-Pacific. And even, you know, random elites come from other countries like South America. There was a Colombian guy who showed up um, who was some former vice president who was in in league with some of these you know spook organizations that are ubiquitous at events like this but they're i think they're first and they first and foremost have to be understood as networking events yeah i mean for both the journalists and the the you know attendees and it, the the purpose is not really to do anything that's that highfalutin or you know principled or philosophical it's to forge these networking professional connections amongst you know, disparate countries. And that's why people are so uh, exhilarated, and intoxicated by the idea of being there. Um, and you know, so I, I think the reason why there's such uniformity in how NATO is portrayed is in part a function of this kind of self-interested careerism that I think drives a lot of the appeal for the journalists uh, who attend.
0: Right. And we should remember that Christia Freeland, who runs Canada's foreign ministry, deputy prime minister, was the editor of Reuters for many years. So, I mean, a perfect example of careerism. Aaron, I don't know if you want to jump in here.
1: Well, just on the point about uh, how NATO is described, you also can't mention when it's said that it's a defensive alliance, you can't mention Libya and Yugoslavia. Those just, just don't, don't exist. Those war those offensive wars just don't exist. And similarly, it's like when you're talking about the Russian invasion, Afghanistan or, or Afghanistan, of course, I Important that. North
0: Atlantic uh, country.
1: Yeah. And when you're t- and like and when you're talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you have to describe it according to the rules based international order. You have to describe it as unprovoked The unprovoked Russian invasion of Ukraine is if Russia one day just woke up, decided to invade Ukraine for the fun of it. Whereas when you talk about the U.S. invasion of Iraq, it's never described as um, as unprovoked. Um, so yeah, th- th- those are the rules that you have to follow. Mike, you saw a Biden news conference too, there, right? Yeah. What yeah, was, I was, that there. I was there? What was that scene like? And and how does it work when he take, when he takes questions from the media?
2: Well, it was the same as Johnson. It was the same in that. The questioners are drawn exclusively from, in the case of the UK, it's called the UK lobby. So it's the equivalent of like the White House pool. Um, and then in the US, it's this White House pool. So it's these, this traveling band of journalists, you know, who go around with Biden everywhere. And then the staff selects which journalists to call upon and puts them on a list. So Biden is at the podium with a prepared list of which journalists to call on, that he doesn't deviate from at all. I think there might have been occasions in the past where he's deviated a bit. Um, like He did one press conference at the White House that went longer than expected, so he did do some spontaneous calling on people, but at this one, he didn't at all. It was just, I think, a total of five outlets that were able to ask questions. It was the New York Times, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, NBC News, and I th- I'm missing one more. Um, but that was it, and oh, AP. That was it, and those were all journalists who were in already kind of selected for because they're members of this White House pool. So you have the White House pool that is there because they cover Biden wherever he goes on his travels, right, but then you also have just ordinary, you know, quote unquote journalists who were able to enter the conference or summit and were able to get into this Biden press conference. You know, it's funny, the Biden press conference was the only press conference of any leader or any official where an extra special step was needed in order to attend. It's kind of an interesting reflection of like US primacy or hegemony because in order to get into the Biden press conference, you couldn't just stroll in, whereas you could with any other press conference. You had to go to this information desk within the media center and like present yourself to this State Department operative, who would then kind of examine your press credential, which you already had been approved for and you had been, you know, conducting yourself throughout the past several days using. Um, But he then has to look at it and then, you know, give you the once over and then decide if you get an extra special pass to then be able to enter the Biden press conference. So there's like another layer of scrutiny in order to attend that. I don't know how I got past that one as well, but I did. And so I was in there and, you know, you I don't know if you guys have ever attended a press conference with like a president or a head of state or something before, but once you're there, you realize that like the press conference is just the whole press conference pretense is just totally theatrical. It's like a pantomime, right? So they might as well not even have it be a press conference at all. If there's no spontaneity whatsoever in who gets to ask, a question. So if the whole act of raising your hand at a, at this press conference, what you think would just be the standard procedure, that's negated. It's mooted because they've already decided who they're going to call. So why bother raising your hand? Now I tried to raise my hand anyway, in the off chance that you know who knows maybe he has a dementia moment and decides to call on me. Um, but there, there was no point. I mean, it just it just shows you the utter kind of triviality and ridiculousness and, and kind of farcical quality of these things. Um, but I think they, but they hold them as press conferences because it gives the illusion to the wider public that they are these kind of organic events where the leaders are mixing it up with journalists just like a democracy is supposed to work and that sort of thing where, no, it's totally preordained and then on top of that, you know, I, I, I was thinking about how to compare and contrast the UK journalists and the American journalists, um, because now I've spent a fair amount of time around UK journalists, in addition to American ones, and my tentative conclusion is that the UK journalists are just as obnoxious as the American journalists, but the American journalists are considerably dumber. Yeah. Because the, you know, the the in, or, in order to rise through the ranks in the UK elite media to get to the point where you like you're on this roster of journalists that the prime minister is going to call on, you at least have to demonstrate something resembling like equality of being clever or having like basic aptitude or just a baseline ability to engage on issues in a back and forth. Whereas these American TV journalists in particular, they're just like the biggest dopes. I mean, they're just, I'm sorry to put it in a very like blunt way, but they just come across as dumb. Like they come across as not even having the mental capacity to engage on any real substantive level like this this woman caitlin collins from cnn she's like a droid um she she did this whole production she actually didn't get called on representing cnn which i found sort of funny um but when biden left the stage i was just going to bring this
0: up sorry to interrupt know, she did cause... this whole
2: performance where she's telling but what but mr president what about britney griner like after oh, Biden man. was totally gone from the stage because, you know, I guess that would make a, you know, an exciting CNN clip that they could show on air. Do, do you, you remember? Somebody, you uh, know, I, I, mean, I, feel, I mean, as much as I hate CNN, as much as I don't feel any kind of solidarity with these journalists at all, I still almost, they, they're, they're so bad that they almost make me feel like embarrassed as an American. And you have to be really
0: bad to like engender that instinct in me. Yeah. Do you remember Putin's press conference? Um, I forget where it was. It was like... So I'm, try- uh, I'm trying to. I'm to try to get get it so the sun is not glaring in the camera. Hold on. A second. Oh yeah, it's a nice backlight, nice dystopian
1: background. I was gonna uh, say too, so we don't forget it. Since we're talking about British journalists a little bit, we should ask Michael later on for his response to the uh, some of the recent Paul Mason revelations. No, we can't say
0: Paul Mason or we're going to be kicked off YouTube for uh, bullying and harassment. Okay. All
1: right. So uh, Mr. M. Mr. M.
0: Okay. So we're going to just refer to Paul Mason as a vaccine or ivermectin. Wait, (laughs) I can't say that either. Sorry. Um, All right. Michael, uh, is this this a shot you're comfortable with? Yeah. Yeah. This is good. We're we're also going to talk about our personal reclamation moments later. Um, I'm going to refer to Paul Mason as trauma victim number
2: one. Yes, well, because he was, he was totally unsettled and, and fearful by my presence that one and day in London. To it, back he in wanted April.
1: you surveilled. He wanted you surveilled. That's what the latest revolution. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. but he's done, he, he's,
2: he's, he's done a poor job trying to get the British security state to surveil me because I ended up in the NATO summit right in front of Boris Johnson. <laughs> so uh, mission unsuccessful thus far. Um, where was I? I go on, uh, tend to go on.
1: Well, you were just talking risk. about how you were embarrassed for your country based on the oh, behavior yeah. of this journalist. Yeah, I mean, it's it just, it's it really it just, uh,
2: I almost want to even separate it from an ideological level, right? Or separate it from uh, any level other than just noting the astounding st- stupidity of the, the the journalists who are kind of regarded, supposed to be the cream of the crop, right? That they're, In that they have this high level access to, to the president at a major foreign event, like there was one person who was who asked a question. I'm pr- I believe it was um, NBC News, Uh Kelly O'Donnell from NBC News. It was funny. It's randomly, I'm sitting among like Kelly O'Donnell from NBC News and the CNN correspondent, as though you know we're just like colleagues.
0: Um, are they real? Like, or are they reptilian shapeshifters? Like, were you able to discern? <laughs> uh, as you can probably appreciate, I made absolutely sure not to touch them. Yeah, in
2: order to test what what uh, materials they were made out of. So I can't say for sure, um, but yeah, I mean Kelly, Kelly O'Donnell just straight up asked uh, just a blatant non sequitur question, and it was just okay. So ba- basically, just prompting Biden to talk about Roe versus Wade, which okay, <gasps> legitimate issue, but we're in a we're at a NATO summit. Biden is leading. The military that is the number one command force within the alliance. When it comes, when, you know, when it comes down to it, Biden is the basically the leader of the military structure of NATO. Um, the whole thing revolves around the primacy of the U.S. Uh, and, and and all these journalists can think to ask is just a soundbite ready, you know, uh, digression. On on Roe versus Wade, which has no bearing at all on anything that was being talked about. I know there was some like there were some political journalists who tried to draw some tenuous connection but by saying that oh the foreign ministers of some unidentified European countries were talking amongst themselves about how, you know, this might compromise, you know, the fact that Roe versus Wade was overturned could uh, compromise the long-term reliability of the U S as the leaders of the Alliance. And it's just like, okay, I mean, that's kind of a stretch, but there are like a thousand different other questions that you could have asked to Joe Biden under those circumstances.
0: And they decide to just do this lowest hanging fruit. Um, you know, uh, well, just to play, I don't, I don't know if it's playing devil's advocate or, but to try to understand Kelly O'Donnell, who is a real, uh, Died in the wool imperial propagandist. Someone who uh, she she actually keynoted the gala event for Brett Baer from Fox News when he launched his charity in D.C. and his charity was set up by the United Arab Emirates, and specifically its ambassador in D.C. and they just basically channeled money to a reporter through a fake charity with Kelly O'Donnell keynoting to buy influence with top broadcasters. So that's who she is. But the idea is sort of that the U.S. American exceptionalism and this concept of the u.S as a shining city on the hill is contingent on liberalism which is now distilled through academia and millennial culture as a set of uh, social justice issues and values and that U.s soft power is projected now through to put it very crudely wokeness I'm actually I'm going to be hosting a interview with Christopher Mott who has a really interesting paper called the woke imperium up uh to 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 flesh out that issue and so yeah macron i think actually, said, i think
2: someone sent me that actually i'm beginning to read it
0: it's worth reading and um yeah i'll i'll host mm-hmm. that at rockfin and then throw it up um here on youtube but um you michael actually commented on macron taking on the us uh for the row reversal and you know he was it's basically a way uh, there, in the you know, you pointed out the hypocrisy of a kind of very Catholic nation, which has se- severe restrictions on abortion, criticizing the U.S. But the point was, this is France asserting its independence and Europe flexing its muscle by kind of undercutting one of the core tenets of U.S. exceptionalism. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean,
2: I think Kelly O'Donnell, you're right. It probably would make a less intricate version of that argument as to why she felt it was justified to talk about roe versus wade i would have responded with something to the effect of okay but that's sort of garbage ask something that's more just obviously relevant um yeah i mean as to mccrone quickly what, what i pointed out was he was you know he did this indignant tweet about how you know women's right to choose must be protected and I doubt very many people who saw that tweet would have known that the law that the Supreme Court upheld in its decision in Dobbs, this Mississippi law, prohibited abortion only after 15 weeks, whereas in France, abortion is prohibited after 14 weeks, (laughs) and up until February had been prohibited until after... um, uh, Twelve weeks. I mean, they only recently increased that limit. So, I mean, it's just—it's not even so much to do a cheap hypocrisy point as it is to note the absurdity in European countries and even other uh, countries like it. You know, even Israel did this. I mean, one of the uh, not, um, Bennett's first uh, last acts after leaving uh, the premiership was to, you know, marginally liberalize abortion law in Israel. In response to this roe versus wade right. decision um but i mean I, I almost view it more as this sort of somewhat pathetic exhibition of their subservience to the u.s like w- otherwise why are you even reacting to this at all it has no jurisdictional effect on you i mean they're acting yeah. like the supreme court presides over france or scotland or something i mean it's it's kind of um There's like a meekness and a fecklessness about it that I find most interesting, whether or not they're like technically hypocritical on the actual facts, which they often are. But that's almost not not the not the key issue, at least as I see it.
0: I don't Um, know if I I were leader of the U.S., I would or or just any U.S. elected official, I would be mocking the shit out of Germany for banning the letter Z. Yeah. (laughs) quick 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 uh,
2: another media anecdote and i think yeah. Aaron in particular will enjoy this um much to my delight uh, natasha bertrand was at this summit um one of the foremost fabulists throughout the entire russiagate saga to refresh my memory when i saw that she was there I quickly, uh, you know, refreshed my memory of some of her greatest hits. And you can go watch her on MSNBC where she's just saying, come on, this is totally obvious that Alpha Bank is the smoking gun that proves, you know, illicit whatever, whatever between Trump and the Kremlin. And as is so common throughout the kind of mainline corporate media industry, she was rewarded for that humiliating failure with more and more lucrative job opportunities so most recently she's at cnn and um i have to say most of the time i observed her she seemed to just be sitting on her laptop at this specially designated table pecking away and would occasionally rise to go do one of her live shots and the live the live shot the overabundance of live shots at this Media center was the most ridiculous part because it's like the the half of the journalists who came to this summit didn't do anything that would necessitate them physically being there. What they do is they set up their cameras and do a live shot where they just give a general factual summary of the latest developments of what happened at the NATO summit. And you know, somehow it's extra authoritative because they happen to be standing in this media center with like the NATO logo in the background. But otherwise they don't seem to do anything that would really require them to physically be in Spain at all. They could have just stayed home or they could have you know, gone to the local studio with a, with a green screen or something. But anyway, you know, Natasha Bernard was there and she did her occasional uh, hits where she did, did these generic summaries. But then there was an occasion where I saw her at a press conference. And it was the press conference for Jens Stoltenberg, who's the NATO Secretary General. And there was it was funny because as I was sitting there waiting around for this press conference to start, I asked one of these kind of random NATO operatives who's just sort of floating around to if this press conference was going to be an actual press conference, meaning are there pre-screened questions? Is it predetermined who's going to be called upon, etc.? Yeah. And the the woman assured me, "Oh no, no, that's not pre-screened at all. Anybody can ask a question, you know." No problem, and um then you know just about just before the press conference is about to start, who rushes in but Natasha Bertrand, and she's being kind of escorted into a prominent seat by the NATO operative
0: <laughs> um I and don't then, know if and we then we have an echo then, by the way, or there's a, is there is there ambient sound where you are michael
2: um yeah, there's.
0: As long as that's, uh, as long as it's not from your computer, I don't no, care. it's not from my computer. Uh, I don't know. It's somebody. Well, remember, we're we're, we're this is a uh, frontline field reporting, somebody. from a conflict zone. So bear with us, everyone. Aaron, yeah. you want to introduce this clip of uh of Natasha Bertrand? That well, we have?
1: it's it's the one that Michael mentioned, where this is uh, back uh, a few years ago when Franklin Foyer of The Atlantic and previously of Slate and Dexter Filkins of The New Yorker were pushing. This conspiracy theory that the Clinton campaign had concocted, along with Fusion GPS, the Christopher Steele dossier uh, authors, uh, that Trump and Russia were secretly communicating via a bank server, a Russian bank server. And this is Natasha Bertrand going on MSNBC and just basically declaring this to be a smoking gun. I mean, what <laughs> more evidence do you need? I mean, it's very, very Aaron, obvious, you, and it's is really the razor here. The, the fact, fact that we, we
0: still have not been able to rule out the idea that this was a covert communication channel two years after the fact, the fact that no one has come forth with a plausible explanation for why this was happening, for why Alpha Bank was one of three organizations communicating with the Trump server in those months leading up to the election, is just completely remarkable. And I think the fact that Frank. Uh, story got overlooked or criticized as much as it did. And the fact that now it's being revisited and you have the editor of the New York Times saying that there you know, was a story there just shows the lack of imagination. I mean, yeah. So the, the lack of, <laughs> I love how she said the lack of imagination, uh, <laughs> you know, like we need to just imagine more how, how uh, Trump could have been connected to Russia. But, uh, you know, it's an amazing anecdote, you know, when you actually see how these reporters are uh, behaving in the field that a NATO officer was actually ushering Natasha Bertrand into um, into her seat. And I can just tell you in D.C., like anytime I signed up for an Atlantic Council event Atlantic Council's NATO's think tank in Washington. Any any time it was concerning Russia or Eastern Europe or anything relating to the new Cold War, she was always on the list. She was just diligently there. So yeah, well let me let me finish the anecdote because it yeah, doesn't stop right. there.
2: Okay, so she's spirited in to this prime seating location at the press conference, and then you know Jens Stoltenberg struts out and delivers his you know hapless remarks. And then they begin the the Q&A, and then there's this additional NATO media aide who's on stage alongside Jens Stoltenberg and has like a booklet out with, of course, the preordained list of journalists that are going to be called on. And guess who is called first? That's right. It was not me. It was Natasha Bertrand. Yeah. And... The question, And the question that she asked is hilarious in like a perverse sense because really all she did was formulate a question that just tried to pro- – uh, 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 that just kind of politely requested Jens Stoltenberg to elaborate on whether Sw- Sweden and Finland, which had been approved for NATO admission, whether they're going to have as many – NATO forces stationed there as, I guess, Natasha would like. That was the kind of that was the question that Natasha posed. And she did the same thing, you know, back in March when I was trying to get into that other extraordinary summit. Natasha had the opportunity to ask Stoltenberg two questions on two consecutive days because for whatever reason they held two consecutive press conferences. The first que- press co- uh, question she asked to Stoltenberg, this was the day before the summit, in march was estonia really wants a base to be built a nato base but in order to do that you have to repeal this sort of this obscure provision within the nato charter that somehow in, inhibits the ability of this base to be built will you please consider repealing this provision
0: that's, what well, that's she what's asked, been well. on
2: everyone's mind michael everyone's yeah. wondering and then the following day after the nato summit Happened and was over, and they were doing this after uh, after event report. Um, here's the question that Natasha Bertrand asked Jens Stoltenberg: Have you given any additional thought to repealing the provision that would prevent the building of a new base in the Baltics? <laughs> so <laughs> Natasha Bertrand, and then you know, two 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 and a half months, three months later, she continues pursuing this passion of new nato basing schemes in the Baltics scandinavia and asks a question that i'm sure she might in her mind genuinely think actually is like adversarial or challenging or probing but she probes it from the direction of let me try to extract a commitment from stoltenberg for additional force deployments like that's, that, that's the idea. way the whole
0: Beltway Press Corps is. Whenever they were like the first time they set in on Biden and decided to be adversarial, it was because he was pulling out of Afghanistan. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I guess I Natasha Bertrand, I
2: think, perfectly just typifies the kind of careerist, you know, self-serving journalist who goes to events like this Um Combination, I would say, of genuine ideological zeal, which I think she probably does have, and also just sheer laziness. Where, for some of these other journalists, it would never really even occur to them to look under the hood of of NATO and try to, you know, interrogate some contradictions or discrepancies. No, to the extent that they're going to ask any challenging questions, it's all going to be geared toward, okay, so why aren't you doing enough? And that's always what Biden is asked too. He's he's always you know, challenged by the press corps, press corps to um, uh, acquiesce to even more extensive shipments of weaponry and that sort of thing. It's never really yeah. the other way around.
1: Well, that's what's so awkward about being in a field called journalism is because you're surrounded by people who claim to be doing the same craft that you think you're doing, which is journalism, but they're not. It's like if you're if you're in Hollywood. And someone is a bad actor. At least they're trying to act. At least they're trying to act. You can say they're bad at it, but at least they're trying. People who call themselves journalists who go to these NATO summits and just act as stenographers for the war state, they're not even trying to do, there's no journalism there. That's just stenography. So it's like, it's just, it's the only field I can think of where you share a, you know, a broad title with other people, but they're not doing the very basics of the craft. It's it's awkward. Like we were, re- Max and I were recently at this conference in Toronto. Yeah. Where's uh, the video of that? Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll come out. They're like, it'll
0: and be out in 24 hours. And then they're like, it'll be out in a week.
1: And anyway, well, so it, it's a media tech conference and somehow we got invited to speak and we got up there and, you know, how did you get invited there. to speak? Cause I saw some people complaining
2: about that, that you were sullying the good name. Of, of course. The yes. Yeah, and
1: that was coming from journalists. Yeah. And you know, well, our, of course, our neighbor- I mean, mean, they're the the ones who go at me the hardest.
0: Yeah. Well, they were sitting in the front row. I mean, you had like Reuters and CBS waiting to come after us. The the, the executive producer of ABC was before us talking about how their January 6th coverage maximized the impact of the hearings. And I mean, it was just one hack after another. You had Betsy Reed from The Intercept talking about disinformation. And I just, my intention was in the 20 minutes we had to just uh, cause as many you know cause Mayan. as much trauma to them as possible yeah. <laughs> and just force them to suffer like an enhanced in, like an enhanced <laughs> I don't know want to call it an interrogation but just uh, to rip their whole professional ethos to shreds as much as i could and i i mean i hope i succeeded but maybe we'll never know there is a giant camera right there but for some reason, whatever's been recorded has not been made public.
1: I'm sure we'll see it. I think these things take a while. The, you know, I've seen nothing else really from the conference. so I'm, I'm sure we'll get it. And our main point was that basically all these people who claim to work in journalism, who complain po- constantly about the scourge of disinformation, they themselves are the leading purveyors of disinformation. So, of course, that was not very well received, but it's true. It's just true.
0: Well, let's 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 go before uh, we uh Go any further? I really, I think we should show some of the highlights of uh, our guest performance from NATO. Um, and this is the—I'm a huge fan of Turkish cinema, especially uh, in the Valley of the Wolves. I don't know if any of you have seen that, but I recommend this highly. Um, especially the Israel uh, edition of In the Valley of the Wolves. It's Turkish action, and this is kind of a, a Turkish action saga here. Um, this is TRT, the Turkish st- State Broadcaster um, doing a special on Michael Tracy's question to president Erdogan. We can show the full question, but I think this is more interesting. Uh, and we have no volume, sorry. And I'm going to have an echo. So let me cancel that first.
1: For the Turkish president's news
0: conference at the end of the NATO summit lasted for an hour. And for one journalist who was chosen at random to ask a question, it came as a surprise. Andrew Hopkins reports.
3: Okay, good morning. Then I think we're ready to start. It's good to see you all. After three days of meetings and decisions, it was time for the NATO leaders to hold their press conferences. And Michael Tracy to ask the oh, Turkish sir. president.
0: The man.
3: You are one of the very few
2: NATO leaders who seems to have even brought up the prospect of pursuing a diplomatic solution for the war in Ukraine. Other leaders like Biden.
3: Or... His tweets on his experiences at the press conference prompted more than 300 comments, reactions supportive and critical. 1,000 retweets and 5,000 likes, including this one. Believe it or not, Erdogan just called on me and answered my question. I noted he's one of the few or only NATO leaders calling for diplomacy in Ukraine, whereas U.S., U.K. are calling for military escalation. He said his approach is superior because the proof is in the pudding. Michael has been a journalist for 12 years and works at the online content platform Substack.
2: I had just come from the press conferences for the prime minister of the U.K., and the president of the U.S. And those press conferences were very tightly controlled, very tightly regulated. So both Boris Johnson and Joe Biden had lists of journalists to call on.
3: Kind of an awkward cut there, but that's okay. The British President took more questions than the U.S. and British leaders combined. Has certainly increased his social media engagement, there was huge interest in the Turkish government's deal with Finland and Sweden, an issue that dominated the summit and the reflection of the more than 20 questions asked of the president, Andrew Hopkins, TRT World. They came
2: to do that ridiculous little b-roll footage at this very courtyard that I'm sitting in right now.
0: Um, so they they actually ask you to, you know, they, they, they always do that with me uh, whenever. In the, a segment like that where they ask you to type nothing, like sweet nothings, into your computer while they film you, so you give convey the image of a journalist. Is that what happened? Yeah, they
2: said, "Do you have a computer?"
0: And I was like, "Yeah." And they said, "Can you go get it?" And I said, "All right."
2: And he said, "They said, can you just pretend to work on it?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really good at pretending to work." So that's
1: no problem. <laughs> I like the line about how this has increased your social media engagement. As if you needed increase social media engagement? Because, you know, as they probably don't know, like your tweets attract a lot of attention constantly, especially when you're critical of the war in Ukraine. You'll have a lot of blue checks coming in to complain and try to call the manager on you. So it's just funny that... No, this
2: was a long-term scheme (laughs) purely to increase my social media engagement. You know, I I mean, the contrast should be obvious in terms of Erdogan versus biden and johnson hmm. right and that's why they did this segment because in my tweets and, and some of the other stuff that i said i pointed out i think reasonably that it sure seems ironic that erdogan who is depicted in the west as this authoritarian and who is accused of cracking down on journalists and dissidents and i mean honestly accurate. i don't know no, yeah, sorry, i mean accurate. i'm not i'm not i'm agnostic about that or i, I don't know i'm not weighing in one way or another i don't have enough
0: Well, most journalists, Turkey has the most journalists in the world jailed. A lot of it relates to the Ergonicon scandal, which has to do with Erdogan's battle with Fatula Gulen and the Gulenist cult. Fatula Gulen is a religious leader who helped Erdogan win power and is now based in Pennsylvania and is obviously a U.S. asset. Erdogan blames him for the 2015 coup and uh, a lot of. 2016, sorry, and a lot of uh, journalists who he accuses of being Gulenists were just simply jailed, and then you have the whole Kurdish issue. So journalists who issue pro-Kurdish statements, you know, are jailed. There's a whole series of national security laws governing speech in Turkey. So just some background, but
2: yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and I'm, I'm broadly aware of that. I guess the the point is, I don't, I haven't investigated independently the issue of crackdowns. On journalists in Turkey, Turkey sufficient that I could, I felt I could feel like I could opine authoritatively on it, right? So, you know, I wasn't going to weigh in one way or another on whether the authoritarian label was accurate or inaccurate. Just pointing out that that's a commonly applied label to Erdogan, right? And then you contrast how he conducted his press conference with Biden yeah. and Johnson where Biden and Johnson, heavily regulated, heavily kind of scripted, pre-screened, no spontaneity, no organic um, tenor to it whatsoever. Um, and then Erdogan, you know, delivers a, a few remarks and then just opens up the floor and just goes around picking anybody who raises their hand. So at least in terms of the conduct of the press conference, it was not, quote, authoritarian in the way that his counterparts in the US and the UK yeah. were, which I think is sort of an irony that's worth dwelling on. So, yes, you know, same, uh,
1: same with Putin, too. Putin, too. I mean, Russia, obviously, a huge amount of coercion of media at home, but yet Putin, when he's done news conferences internationally, he takes questions. He's even done long sit down interviews with yeah. US journalists. Imagine Joe NBC. Biden. Yeah, yeah. Imagine Joe Biden doing that with a Russian journalist or from some other country. It would never happen.
0: Er- Erdogan is, uh, you know, similar to Putin in the in that respect, in that he's sort of a realist, uh, aggressively pushing the what he sees as the national interest of Turkey, uh, advancing its interests and in its near abroad, and uh, has a really fluent understanding of international issues. Is physically fit because he's a former semi-pro football player, comes from a working class neighborhood in Istanbul where he learned preaching, memorized the Quran. Uh, It's just a very charismatic public speaker. Uh, And and in contrast strongly with the leaders of the supposedly democratic West, Boris Johnson, for example, had to stop working at home recently because he is too distracted by the plethora of cheese in his refrigerator. He can't stop eating cheese. Um, And Biden, obviously, He actually at NATO was unable to identify enemy from friend in his speeches and confused Sweden with Switzerland. I mean, it was pretty disastrous. He has his note where it says, uh, did you see him holding a note? You know, there was this recent close up photo of the note where it said, you must take your seat as opposed to somebody else's seat. Um, I don't think because he he meandered away from
2: the podium for a little bit as he was answering the questions. I don't think I remember noticing him holding a piece of paper at that point, but he definitely had one on his podium that he was using to dictate who, who which journalist he was calling. Yeah. Up. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know if I was smitten really by Erdogan's charisma. I mean, maybe the language barrier diminishes my D- ability domestically to pick up he's on considered that. charismatic. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but. I, I guess it it speaks to the relative sort of laxity of his press conferences that I was able to just tee him up for a, a question that could have resulted in him. You know, I, I was basically inviting him to criticize Biden and, uh, right. and and or Johnson, and you know, had he taken the bait, I guess, if you want to put it crudely, that could. Create serious issues, and yet there I was, given that opportunity, just kind of randomly, with no pre-screening, no predetermination at all, just simply raising my hand and being called on, which is what you think would be the ordinary protocol for a press conference, but in practice, really, is not. And so, you know, I uh, I had never been in that kind of scenario before. So on the one hand, I have to like you have to have these translation headphone devices, right? So I'm listening to the translation. And then all all of a sudden I get the impression that he's asking me a question. Yeah. And basically what he was asking me is if I know the equivalent of this Turkish idiom that he was using. And apparently I learned afterwards that the idiom was mistranslated by the Turkish translator in my ears. So I thought he was trying to say – I thought he said the proof is in the eating. And that meant presumably he was trying to – get me to say the proof is in the pudding but apparently the expression was entirely different and it was just, it was
0: something to the effect of
2: um well every let's, let's watch it and yeah. let, let's yeah. not ruin it for our viewers let's sorry, watch the sorry, whole sorry.
0: question this is this is there's so many remarkable elements to this that i think illustrate <laughs> a lot of the various themes you've been hitting on so here's your full exchange with erdogan Hello.
2: you are one of the very few nato leaders who Seems to have even brought up the prospect of pursuing a just pause for a second, pause for a second, pause for a second because he's he. The reason why I said um, he's one of the very few leaders who has brought this up is because he opened his remarks at this press conference by reiterating his desire to continue to broker or try to broker some sort of diplomatic engagement between Russia and Ukraine, and he emphasized that he was in regular contact or you know, he claimed to be with both Putin and um Zelensky so you know there's pretty much no, I personally heard no other le- leader from NATO who even mentioned anything to do with diplomacy it's all it's all military escalation especially Biden
0: and Johnson so that that's the kind of context well and we'll we'll talk we'll talk more about the context because i think uh turkey's pivot at this conference is one of the major uh Major events to come out of it, uh, yeah. vis-a-vis Sweden and Finland. We'll talk about that, um, but let's. Sorry, everyone, I'm muting. Too. I look I look okay. great in
2: this screen grab, by the way.
0: Yeah, that's a very suggestive. Um, <laughs> what. So everyone can imagine what Michael Tracy would look like licking an ice cream cone made of a metallic ice cream cone. But turn up your volume if you're watching at home, uh, because for, I'm, I got it up all the way on Twitter, and that's just as far as it will go. And uh, I'm going to mute now. So there's no echo.
2: The leaders like Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, they're emphasizing almost exclusively the military component. Biden just this afternoon announced new missile systems being deployed to Ukraine by the U.S.,
0: sorry i paused it just just look at the woman in front of you because michael you've been mentioning how uh you know all the reporters have this uniform perspective on nato they see it as a defensive alliance she's beginning to get upset and she's trying to she knows she's on camera she's just trying to contain her complete contempt for you so everyone just watch the that's that's my reading it's pretty hilarious i don't know who
2: that is but she doesn't seem too thrilled accounts for this difference in philosophy and do you think the path being chosen by the U.S. or the U.K. is overly aggressive and is going to prolong the war.
3: Well,
4: I will try to uh, respond. And hopefully you will understand my language through interpretation. Um, the proof is in the eating.
0: The proof is in the eating.
4: There is a method and there is a style of everybody doing certain things. Do you have such an expression or a similar expression? Uh,
0: and you said the proof is in the uh, pudding, so, so pudding, there,
4: right? Yeah. A, I mean, is what, what other expression it, would you think he's he's alluding one. to? Boris is a close friend of mine. It's a good friend of mine, and he has his own perspective. He has his own style of doing things, and I have my own style of things. Here. We have to establish a politics based on a balance. And I need to believe that diplomacy should be pursued. And if we take steps forward on a win-win scenario, everybody will enjoy more auspicious uh, decisions and results, I believe. Uh, So that's why we're talking to Mr. Zelensky and Mr. Putin on a continuous basis. And uh, once once a week or every ten days, we have telephone uh, conversations with them. Out of which, I believe we will cultivate some results.
0: Okay, so there the uh, great great question. I I don't know why 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 wouldn't anyone else ask such a question of him? Or or were were there other critical questions? Because. Uh...
2: I mean, there were critical questions, but not from that bent, not from a bent. I mean, I guess the way I would put, I would, I would describe my angle, like the angle from which I asked that question would be kind of questioning one of the underlying premises behind what NATO is up to, right? And virtually no other journalist, at least that I saw or heard, really could be bothered to ask anything remotely like that. It would never even occur to them. I mean, so there were there were like kind of these more superficially critical questions. It's like challenging from the standpoint of uh, I guess kind of trying to pin them down on the logistics of this deal that was brokered between Turkey and Sweden and Finland to extradite. Uh, Kurds who he says are suspected terrorists.
0: Right. And that kind of
2: thing. And then there was another journalist. This is actually another funny uh, anecdote. There was another journalist, I guess is what she would call herself. Julia McFarlane. Do you know this person?
0: Yeah. She used to be uh, a palace cover uh, Israel, Palestine for one of the British papers and did a a pretty terrible, but typical and terrible job. Okay. Complete careerist. Yeah, well, I mean, in her Twitter bio,
2: she proudly announces that she's a Forbes 30 Under 30 alum, as does <laughs> Natasha Bertrand, by the way, which kind of tells you all you need to know. Uh, and I don't think she's still 30, whatever. But this can important. I be 50 under 50? Um, like, imagine being like 38 and proudly touting as one of like the the most prominent aspects of your bio you were on the 30 under 30 list
0: anyway. well, well look at the um, listen to the kind of the kind of figure you're describing michael is the leader of finland sana yeah. marine i mean this is the perfect example of someone who's completely malleable by a a power structure that is uh dedicated to permanent war and western supremacy but who has the figure of a woman who wears a like a low cut a power blazer and is 30 under 30. She's the youngest world leader, I think. And she's the darling of the social democratic left in the US and Europe. And she's just completely gung-ho to join NATO and to turn up the heat on Russia's frontier and fight a nuclearized Arctic war. It's kind of like, uh, you know, AOC is another figure like that.
2: Yeah. So anyway, uh, Julia McFarlane, was also called on to ask a question and she brought up, you know, crackdowns on journalists and that kind of thing. And I'm not saying it's an inherently unnewsworthy topic, but you got the sense, I couldn't shake the sense that there is something superficial about it because like he's, she's saying, you know, do you uphold, you don't, how can you say that you uphold the values of NATO when you're cracking down on on journalists and how you know how democracy has been eroded in your country, and it's just it seems like a cheap line of questioning to me. It's like low hanging fruit. It doesn't challenge anything to do with like the foundational precepts of NATO. It doesn't really buck conventional wisdom at all. It's just the very well, Mike. Also,
1: ob- also, Mike. She would never ask that question of Boris Johnson about yeah, his yeah. imprisonment exactly. of Julian Assange or of Joe Biden, even though she's based in the UK. So you can always yeah. ask these questions to people on the periphery of your alliance who are, you know, holding back the alliance's grand plans, but never actually the people at the top of it, which is the U.S. and the U.K.
2: And, and Erdogan at one point actually pressed her and said, "Okay, who is making these accusations about you know the status of democratic norms or whatever in Turkey?" And then she cited uh, Freedom House, and Erdogan said, "Well, maybe Freedom House needs to examine itself." and you know, I, I guess I'm just kind of now reflexively dubious of the methodology of these nonprofits, which claim to be able to quantify democracy in Turkey and like make a strict one-on-one comparison between Turkey and some other country. It just seems like it's a it's like an outgrowth of this nonprofit industrial complex that. Uh, I, I don't take it at face value, so therefore, I probably wouldn't want to make it the the, the basis of a question. I mean, but the reason I brought her up was not even necessarily to contest the legitimacy of her question. It was just to say that she, you know she's a she's going around calling herself a journalist or a and a broadcaster, and and fair enough. But her, she's supposedly formerly BBC, ABC, whatever. Her current job, fascinatingly, is she co-hosts a podcast with the former head of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm so serious. Funny. Look it up. Well, and she does this under the, the supposedly journalistic auspices of this PR agency, you know, that I guess hires her to do this promotional podcast, sends her off to NATO summits to do interviews with people. And it's a PR firm that is run by some former uh, White House official, I think in the Obama administration. So, you know, I mean, I don't care who calls himself a journalist. It's a pretty amorphous concept, but that's not typically
0: the kind of affiliation you would associate with just being a pure-hearted journalist. Yeah, I don't know if you saw any of our recent reporting on Dear Love, but if you go to thegrayzone.com right now, we have leaked emails from Richard Dear Love and a former NATO advisor who no one has heard of named Gwynethian Prinz, who are basically basically reveal how they instrumentalized Brexit to oust Theresa May. They infiltrated the civil service. They were working the media, spiriting out confidential documents from Theresa May's cabinet uh, to yeah. uh, ensure a hard Brexit because Dear Love as the former MI6 chief, he was having meetings with Kissinger, describing meetings with top U.S. former officials and power brokers in Washington. They wanted to get out of the Brussels security architecture, and tighten the bond with Washington through Brexit. So Dear Love is still a power player. He also participated in the WMD hoax around Iraq when he was MI6 director. So that's really remarkable.
1: He's very tight with Christopher Steele. And actually, Julian McFarlane. when Christopher Steele spoke publicly for the first time in years, last year, there was this ABC documentary hosted by George Stephanopoulos, there's this big puff piece on Christopher Still trying to make him look somewhat credible. And Julia McFarlane was a uh, talking head in that. Let me say uh, on the point about Erdogan, I do think the allegations against him of being authoritarian are absolutely correct. W- whether or not dubious organizations like Freedom House say them or not, I just think they're weaponized at convenient times. So when he's playing along, he's great. And these allegations will come up when they need him to fall in line. Like right now, when he's basically trying to hold uh, the expansion of NATO... Uh, hostage to his own aims against the Kurds. That's when these allegations come up. But for example, when he's all, you know, what he did to destroy Syria, what he's doing now to the Kurds of Syria who are supposed to be U.S. allies. And uh, when he sent in, uh, you know, sectarian... The whole Syria
0: squad. dirty war, he was like the hero of the He West. was the hero,
1: yeah. And when he sent in, you know, a few years ago, sectarian death squads into Syria to kill Kurds, you know, you see puff pieces in the New York Times about how, you know, he's modernizing... These areas that are really like living under death squads that are they're killing people. So it's I I think the allegations against him are true, but they're just they're used only at times that are convenient to help to 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 make sure that he falls into line.
0: Yeah, if I can just introduce something real quick uh, based on his response to to Michael, Um, he referred to Boris Johnson as his good friend because he had sort of gotten what he wanted out of the negotiations. Um, But here's something that Boris Johnson said about Erdogan. Uh, before the whole Syria dirty war when he was, you know, evil, bad guy. Number one, this is in The Spectator. It's a right wing British publication. Douglas Murray is a, you know, top Islamophobe uh, who's complained about too many black people being in England. Um, And he introduced the President Erdogan offensive poetry competition and a um, former journalist named Boris Johnson was actually the winner. I'll read Boris Johnson's winning verse. Recep Erdogan is the Turkle. Never tire of rim jobs from his circle. Yet his cheapest delight now Khalifa's in sight. Are the felchings he gets from Frau Merkel? So uh, that's the prime minister of the UK. Whimsical, very.
2: Whimsical. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I take all those points. I, I was more referring to, I guess, the you know the internal repression that is alleged. Which, again, I grant, might be perfectly accurate that in terms of what's being alleged. But I just don't like to, you know, if I'm going to be asking a question like in a public venue or something, and I haven't done, I haven't independently corroborated something to that effect, and I have to just rely purely, especially if I'm making like a factual claim about what is happening in Turkey, and I'm relying almost exclusively on these these nonprofits, who otherwise I would probably view as Somewhat dubious sources or have questionable methodology, and that, and, and so on, and so forth. Um, I, I, I would be wear, wary of asking a question that is, is reliant on that. Um, whereas, you know, I didn't have to. The question I asked was not reliant on anything
0: dubious, really. It was just no. You a, highlighted a great, the underlying uh, contradictions of NATO and Turkey being a non-aligned state, part of a Western supremacist alliance, and so it always plays this kind of spoiler role. It was the perfect question, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, yeah. So uh, just a side note. So Julia McFarlane, she does this podcast with the former chief of MI6, and it's hosted by this PR firm called Global Situation Room. It's run by two former Obama officials, including one who touts himself as director of global engagement at the White House, who built a number of President Obama's legacy international initiatives. Um, and so, you know, they, they that, uh, do a-
0: Richard Stengel, who is that?
2: No, his name is Brett Brun. I hadn't heard of him. Um, but they, uh, you know, they, they say they specialize in, of course, crisis management and thought leadership. So that's the entity that sent this journalist to go do journalism interviews with Erdogan and everybody else. I mean, she was she was getting all kinds of Interviews with with exclusive officials. I'm sure she was able to you know utilize her connections to to set those up. Um, a quick anecdote on Finland. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna write this up. I'm doing a, like a media. am doing sort of two posts on this. One is more media oriented. The next is going to be so more like I guess substantive or policy oriented. But on the latter front, I by happenstance I was able to get a quick interview in with the uh, Finnish. Minister of Foreign Affairs. Um, It's sort of it's sort of uh, surreal at these at this event because you know unless you have a a um, like a reference sheet or something, it's hard to recognize just by a visual appearance who these officials are. Like it's not like I would just uh, on on my own recognize the Finnish Ministry Minister of Foreign Affairs. So they just sort of unleash you. You have to just kind of suss things out. So I am I found the Minister of Foreign Affairs for, for uh, Finland. I happened to be reading about Finland's kind of years-long trajectory in, in joining NATO. And after 2014, with the Crimea annexation, was the kind of first uh, rumblings of Finland really making a concerted push to, to join NATO. And the president at the time, who's still the president now, this guy uh, Nistro, uh, Nisto, he, um, you know, like he's the most popular figure in Finland because he's, you know, the, the president, which is kind of this uh, more slightly more ceremonial role. I mean, he still has some power, but he's not the prime minister, right? Um, he, at the time, post-2014, was pushing back on those who said Finland should join NATO because, according to the president, if Finland were to join NATO, it must be approved by a popular referendum first. Like, no ifs, ands, or buts. Um, it couldn't be done any other way. That was his position at the time. And so I asked the Minister of Foreign Affairs, okay, so what happened to this whole idea of making, NATO's, uh, making Finland's NATO membership bid contingent on the passage of a referendum? Did that just fall by the wayside? Because that seemed like that was a pretty mainstream um, belief not too long ago. And he said, "Well, his view, and this, and his view seems to have become the dominant one in Finland, was that a, a referendum would be unacceptable because what they think would happen, or what they say, claim would happen, is that there would be active measures in the referendum. Right, Russian disinformation
0: would sway the public. Right, as it so did they with can't Brexit. right,
2: so they can no longer rely on the sound judgment of the Finnish public." because of this you know, all-consuming threat that maybe, you know, Putin's going to unleash some
0: Twitter trolls. So the, 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 the leaders of Finland are so contemptuous and Sweden of their public that they think that they would be more convinced by the arguments of Russian trolls than by their own leaders. That's what yeah. you're saying.
2: Uh, I think that's a reasonable inference based on what this official told me. I mean, it is true that the Finland's parliament did overwhelmingly approve it. And um, I think it was something like 95 to 5%, if you put it as a percentage, in favor of membership. So I mean, that counts for something, I guess, in terms of democratic legitimacy. But the fact that they just totally tossed aside this high ideal of ensuring that the, fin- the Finnish population got to weigh in directly um, because you know, they couldn't Risk that you know, Putin was going to be able to micromanage Finnish popular opinion. You know, that's 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 pretty interesting. That's a that's a pretty far-flung legacy of RussiaGate, but it's
0: it's definitely one of them. Well, I, I was in Finland. I spent significant for me a significant amount of time enough to take several saunas and do talks in several cities around the country, and I also did a uh, a talk in Tallinn, uh, Estonia. While focusing on the issue of Palestine, um, soon after the for the major assault on Gaza in 2014. So this is 2015. but it was obvious to me they were deluged with pro-NATO propaganda. I mean, something was being prepared there. So it was after 2014, after Crimea, after Maidan, and they were being prepared for something big. And my you know lefty anti-war friends that were hosting me were. Sort of uh, shell shocked by what was taking place. So I can't even imagine how a plebiscite would go the way of the anti NATO crowd in either of those countries at this point. Um, and then, you know, talking to mainstream kind of media type people there. And in Sweden, too, where I've done talks and I've been on the national broadcaster, um, there's just so much hostility to Russia. I mean, they see it as synonymous with Hitler. So the It really it's kind of astonishing how afraid they were to put it to a vote, which would have legitimized their their membership in a way that, you know, they haven't.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess you could make an argument that it's been legitimized by the endorsement via Parliament, but the legitimacy has to be somewhat in question given that they just overrode their prior assurances, at least the president's prior assurances, that they would put it to a vote. Like on what grounds? I mean, the grounds apparently, again, it's just the fear of these ridiculous active measures, but I don't get why they would be so fearful of that if it's true that the population is as radicalized and hardened against Russia and in favor of NATO membership as it apparently is. I mean, I don't necessarily even doubt that it is. So it's this um, strange bugaboo that they continue to be banging on about. I think it's because they really just wanted to expedite the process after the... Ukraine war started and they wanted to do it in conjunction with Sweden right so if you know Finland scheduled some referendum for a couple months from now you know that could complicate the timeline and they really just wanted to um, you know get it done as seamlessly as possible hopefully actually in time for some kind of formal announcement at this uh, NATO summit in Madrid and that's, that's what they ended up engineering but there is an irony embedded in that that they had to kind of supersede what they previously said was this totally necessary affirmation of democratic will.
0: Well, let, let me ask you uh, about uh theme. This wasn't a clip from NATO, although it was probably discussed at NATO, but I, I, I wanted to, this went viral. And it's one of the, I think it's the major issue facing the West and I would say the whole world, uh, which is what I consider the controlled demolition of the global economy. And I just want to wanted to ask to what extent it was engaged with, at NATO, by the press, or by the, the the officials.
1: Sustainable. What do you say to those families who say, listen, we can't afford to pay $4.85 a gallon for months, not years, this is just not sustainable. Well,
3: what you're
0: in from the present today was a clear articulation of the stakes. This is about the future of the liberal world order, and we have to stand firm. So the liberal world world, world order, by that he means the that you know we have to show resolve in the face of putin and continue this war and continue escalating and suck it up at the you know working class americans you know you want to get your kids to school and your your minivan your used minivan uh you got to pay six dollars at the pump because we got to fight putin and defend democracy um that's, that's so definitely what the saying
2: that's definitely what the average joe and jane out in like southwestern ohio wake up
0: every morning really preoccupied with
2: preserving the liberal world order.
0: Yeah. So that, but that's, that's the message coming from the Biden administration uh, out of NATO and Brian Deese, by the way, this character you see there, and, and this is some Aaron, uh, we should definitely put this on screen. Um, well, just as I was saying, Brian Deese, that figure you saw there is the former head of um of uh, sustainable investing for BlackRock, the venture capital firm, which is instrumental in demolishing the American economy, in buying up distressed real estate after a pandemic that where it designed, helped design the CARES Act uh, to cause mass evictions and so on, or that caused mass evictions. But here you have uh, something you excerpted from the Washington Post, Michael Um, about officials describing the stakes of ensuring Russia cannot swallow up Ukraine. In other words, you know, it gets like Crimea and Lugansk and Donetsk are independent. An outcome officials believe could embolden Putin to invade other neighbors or even strike out at NATO members as so high that the administration is willing to countenance even a global recession and mounting hunger, meaning famine across the global south because fertilizer grain is not being exported from Russia and Ukraine. Then that says it all right there.
1: Embedded in that is a presumption that it's only up to officials in Washington to decide whether the rest of the world faces a global recession and mounting hunger. It doesn't occur to anyone. What about the people who will actually endure this global recession and mounting hunger? Like, do they get a say in whether or not they're willing to die up their livelihoods go without food just to, just to deny russia a victory in ukraine and it's all the more just like insane when you actually look at what denying russia a victory in ukraine means as max said you know russia is not going to conquer all of ukraine uh, they're they want to keep crimea which everyone knows is never going back to ukraine that's already been settled and now it's a question it's of not according is- to ukraine <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah. Every now
2: and then you see the military intelligence chief declaring that they're going to launch a counteroffensive even into Crimea.
1: Well, Zelensky even said that prior to the invasion, uh, prior to Russia's invasion. He was talking about taking back Crimea. But everyone knows that that's never going to happen. Um, and everyone, ever, and everyone, everyone also forgets that, again, for years, there was a settlement on the table called Minsk, which Russia formally accepted, which would have kept Ukraine's sovereign borders intact with the exception of Crimea. But Russia was prepared to recognize uh, Ukraine's borders, with the exception of Crimea, to include the Donbass region. And we know now from Poroshenko, who was the Ukrainian president who who negotiated Minsk, that they never had any intention of adhering to it. And what Minsk basically called for was the Donbass rebels demilitarized in exchange for being given some limited autonomy inside of Ukraine, but keeping Ukraine's borders intact. And Russia recognized Minsk. Ukraine, with with Washington's backing, refused to implement it, and that is what helped lead to this war. And now, instead of just going back to Minsk and trying to work out something along those lines, although the situation is different now, now the U.S. is willing to sacrifice, you know, the world economy, global hunger, just to deny Russia a victory. And I have actually the Poroshenko clip, which I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up. Yeah, please. I got, I got, I got you it. You got it. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating.
0: Uh, this is fascinating. Uh, before we get. I guess, before we get Michael's response, uh, let's watch this fascinating clip of the war.
3: How did the negotiations in Minsk and We achieved what we wanted. We
2: didn't trust put it and, and we don't now. Our task was to avert the threat or to delay the war. It was necessary to get eight years for us to restore economic growth and build up a powerful military. This was the first task, and it was achieved.
1: The Minsk so that's what he's saying there is Minsk gave us 8 years to build up our military and put off the war that they knew was inevitable which is basically him saying if i'm reading him correctly that they never had any intention of, of implementing the Minsk peace accords which put a, could an end which should have put an end to the Donbass war and we instead using those accords to prepare for a bigger war with Russia not just a war internally with the rebels in the Donbass.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like Israel and the Oslo Accords, how they just kept negotiating and negotiating and never settling on anything in order to put new facts on the ground in the West Bank, military bases, settlements, walls, et cetera. So that's what Ukraine did. Uh, Michael, so were any of these issues discussed at NATO and specifically the state of the global economy, or was it kind of just considered normal that this was taking place? Well, even Biden in his press conference
2: reiterated that very sentiment from the Washington Post article where they're kind of characterizing the, an administration official saying, look, it's worth it to trigger a global recession and famine in order to prevent Russia from seizing Severo, Severodonetsk or something, which, you know, since that article came out, has been seized. So too little too late there, I guess. Um, but you know, Biden reiterated that he said that U.S. support for Ukraine will remain without any um, vacillation for as long as it takes. And he took the opportunity at this summit to announce even longer-range missiles systems being deployed to Ukraine that, in theory, could be used to strike targets. Uh, farther and farther into Russian territory. So, I mean, it's it's sort of been an interesting discrepancy, because over this past month and a month and a half, you have seen a shift in the tenor of the media coverage around the war, where it's more pessimistic about Ukraine's chances, and it's kind of a bit more forthright about how Ukraine is concealing a lot of information about its casualties and its progress and so on. Whereas in the earlier portion of the war, that was just entirely under a propaganda, like umbrella of concealment, right, and nobody could even fathom trying to penetrate it. But more and more, like I think, it's this: um, uh, the, the 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 edifices begin to crumble somewhat. Yeah. Um, and and yet, none of that that so that change in tender within. Some precincts of the media anyway hasn 't coincided really at all with any change in the actual policy, if anything, the policy's ramping up
1: yeah yeah the, yeah.
2: the policy, the policy yeah. is intensifying the u s military commitment, and Biden you know chooses a new means of escalation every other week or so, so yeah, and Biden reiterated that at the conference and that just you know a, a, one more point because I think this is relevant. There was also a Senate delegation that was at the NATO summit. I tried to talk to them. It was led by Senators Gene Shaheen and Tom Tillis, who, you know, they had been flying around, members of this delegation had been flying around to Helsinki and to um, Stockholm to kind of, you know, uh, do pep rallies for the NATO membership bids of those two countries. And, you know, the big final step was going to be um, this this NATO summit. And uh, I tried to be able to, I, I did a Brief interview with with one of them, Tillis, but like then his aide got started hyperventilating, and you know you couldn't even hear hear what she was saying through her mask. She was like one of the three percent of attendees who was still fully messed up, and uh, you know just was almost you know had a breakdown, so I I couldn't complete the interview really. Um, and then it turned out like they actually had their they had a press conference on the final day, just like the, the heads of state had, but they did it off site in a totally different. Part of Madrid and hotel for some reason and only invited like a handful of reporters like a guy from politico and something it's just bizarre the way that they wrangle these things anyway the point is they were going around meaning tillis and shaheen talk basically restating what biden said about the how the u.s commitment must be unwavering and in fact tillis who is a republican so was getting a bunch of questions about how he contends with this small but potentially growing faction within the Republican Party that is more skeptical about, you know, signing a blank check for Ukraine and waging uh, indefinite proxy war on their uh, behalf, et-, et-, et cetera. And the thing he would always, bring, would always bring up, and you see this brought up by other officials as well since the war started, was that was the China component. And he connected that to the fact that this strategy declaration that NATO put out for the first time since 2010, specifically identifies China as an enemy target, uh, binds it sort of indelibly to to Russia based on the supposed alliance that those two countries are claimed to have. And Tillis is then using that to kind of provide an additional layer of ideological justification to Biden's essential demand, which is that the commitment must be unwavering limitless and but for tillis's purposes he can say look this is a way to also get more republicans on board who might be skeptical because now we just have to come to the realization that you know china and russia are in this together and if we want to you know uh, counteract china if we want to stand up to China's depredations or whatever, which a lot of Republicans at least say they want to do, although who knows exactly what they mean by that. But th- that the point is Tillis is now kind of organizing this effort to to make it so that Biden's demand is more palatable on a bipartisan basis. And I think it may work. I mean, you've seen Tom, Till- uh, uh, Tom Cotton has made this exact point over and over again. Rubio, um, I think they could probably even get others even like a Josh Hawley or something to get on board with this at least tentatively even the Hawley did vote against that40 billion dollars uh, supplemental bill in the well um, he's
0: part of the, the faction uh, that wants war with China but not Russia or some kind of yeah. with China
2: right but but if if perpetuating the proxy war in Ukraine can be sold as a means by which to challenge China right uh, as as like a test, for China's resolve or something, in this kind of you know, ridiculous scattershot way. But nonetheless, that's going to be the rationale. Um, I think then you know, maybe you will be able to get more people on board in, in, in um, pursuing that. Because like, the argument is, if the US relents in Ukraine, then that emboldens China, right? Or that, that vindicates China, and then that um, allows them to continue on their war path or something. Um, so anyway, Tillis, Tillis, I, I you know, saw um, making this point in the media room, um, and uh, you know, is um, he, there he and some of the, and the other Republicans on this trip were fielding a lot of que- I mean, Republican senators were fielding question, a bunch of questions. I wish I had a better opportunity to ask them myself. Unfortunately, you know, that was taken from me. But um, they were fielding a lot of questions about how they are going to deal with. Increasing skepticism within their party's ranks, and you know they would talk about this China element, and I think that could be salient depending on how artfully they're able to put it. Um, whereas on the Democratic side, I mean that's totally locked in. And I mean the only the only question really is whether they can keep a sufficient number of Republicans on board to um, to keep keep the momentum going. You know, a, 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 a foreign journal, a Finnish journalist actually asked me. Um, if I thought that the Senate would, would ratify the amendment to the NATO treaty, the North Atlantic treaty that would be required to formalize NATO's or, uh, Finland's accession into uh, NATO. And I said, yeah, I think, I, I mean, if I had to guess, I think it's likely that that will get ratified, but I think there's going to be this contingent of Republicans who might be um, who might be skeptical? Who would have to be dealt with by you know the majority by the, by Mitch McConnell or something? Um, and I think you know, if, especially if that vote comes in tandem with a new round of funding that has to be approved, then um, it's possible that that legislation could hit some some roadblocks. I mean, if I again, if I had to guess, I would think that it would probably be still enacted. But I think in order to paper over those divisions, in order to to ensure smooth sailing on both of those fronts, meaning additional funding maybe in September or something when the most recent round runs out, and then on the ratification of the treaty to admit both Sweden and uh, Finland into NATO, um, I think you're going to probably see this whole like China component escalated in its emphasis to, to tailor the argument to potentially um, uh, ambivalent or even oppositional Republicans. And, then they'll, and they'll have this strategy decree that was just issued by NATO to, like, to back them up uh, and make the only argument.
1: The only senator I could see possibly voting against that is Rand Paul at this point. Yeah. That's it. In the Senate. In the Senate. I mean, that's it. Um, Bernie was, of course, as, we, as we've discussed many times, uh, was eagerly on board with approving another $40 billion for the, for the uh, Ukraine proxy war. Uh, along with every other member of, of the squad and the Congressional Progressive Caucus. The media situation in the U.S. right now is pretty amazing. As Mike pointed out, Trump throwing ketchup against the wall, or, or an anecdote about Trump throwing ketchup against the wall because he was mad about Bill Barr pushing back on his uh, uh, election conspiracy theories in 2020, got more attention than Biden going to Madrid and overseeing an expansion of NATO and a ramping up of the a Ukraine proxy war. It seems that the dysfunctions of the U.S. right now, mass shootings, Roe versus Wade, the whole January 6th thing are overshadowing. What we were told is like a, you know, once in a generation struggle of autocracy versus democracy or or democracy versus autocracy. So even the media is having a hard time staying focused on the Ukraine story. And of course, when they do, there's zero critical scrutiny. And in fact, today, Max, you know, there's an article in the Times about how russia spreads propaganda that there are nazis inside of ukraine or something like that that was yeah. the gist of that yeah. story
0: yeah it's all made up um yeah. but though i love the catch up on the wall story this is one of these characters that comes out of nowhere that we've been experiencing. where we, we have this strange and extremely boring Russia Gate theater where these characters we've never heard of come out of the uh, national security or political architecture and suddenly become heroes as whistleblowers. And now we're, we meet Cassidy Hutchinson, the brave 25-year-old who is kind of like the uh, Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter. Niara, except that Niara, when she was testifying about babies being taken off the incubators in Iraq, was actually claiming that she saw the babies being taken off the incubators. So her lie was at least a first person lie, whereas Cassidy Hutchinson, who was the aide and aide to Mark Meadows, who was Trump's chief of staff, she didn't even claim to have seen the catch up on the wall or Trump lunging for the steering wheel, she was hearing this hand, and so she was the star witness. And it totally, yes, it overshadowed everything taking place around NATO, the escalation around Taiwan, et cetera. But of course, why would the uh, Beltway Press Corps want to talk about Ukraine anymore when they're quietly admitting that the tide is turning and that the war is going in the direction we always knew it was going to go where Russia would actually win in the east here, Aaron, uh, we have the the piece you mentioned also, which is hilarious, um, how Russian media spread false claims about Ukrainian Nazis. So if you scroll down, you can see that they have this graph basically created by a military contractor that does open source intelligence. Um, Aaron, if you want to scroll down. And it shows that Russia, Russian articles, they began talking about Nazism in Ukraine on February 24th, the date of the special military operation, the Russian invasion, whatever you want to call it. But um, I actually um, – yeah, it's military contractor. I mean the articles – You, you are- could
1: do the reverse graph when it comes to Western media. So before the invasion, there was an acknowledgment that there were neo-Nazis embedded inside – The Ukrainian military, the New York Times among them would say that the Azov Battalion is a neo-Nazi paramilitary organization. That was in the Times. After the invasion, that gets excised and now you can't call them neo-Nazi. Now they're far right or they're just a paramilitary organization. Somehow the neo-Nazism disappeared.
0: Yeah, I actually have have, have that graph. Hold on. By the way, Max, here are are headlines from the Western press before February 24th about Ukrainian Nazism. And you can see, oh, it's a festival of Russian disinformation. Bellingcat at the center. Yes, it's still okay to call Ukraine C-14, which is sponsored by the Ukrainian state. Neo-Nazis. Bellingcat, uh, as we always say, is a US and UK-backed organization. So yeah, uh, the opposite effect happened here in the U S after February 24th, where the, the the Nazis stopped existing. Um, they, they stopped existing so much that we're delivering them massive supplies of weapons.
1: Max, uh, one small correction. Hutchinson did testify that she saw the ketchup on the wall. She didn't see Trump throw it, but she did witness the ketchup. She did witness it dripping and she claimed that she wanted to, uh, help clean it up, which I don't believe, but it's, uh, it's
0: like the, um, the uh, Ecuadorian officials who saw the feces on the wall that Julian
1: Assange threw in the embassy. (laughs) Um, Not to compare
0: Trump to Assange, but... Yeah,
1: I mean, I I believe the ketchup anecdote, but that's the point. It's so... Even if 100% true, it's also completely trivial. It doesn't advance the story of what we know about January 6th anymore. We know that what Trump did was crazy. Why are we still talking about it 18 months later, especially with all that's going on in the world, including a because we're you know, learning that it worked,
2: we're learning that it was a literal coup. Now, <laughs> yeah. that's why we're focused yeah. on it because yeah. it was a genuine attempt to overthrow the government when it was just barely thwarted. Yeah,
1: I don't know if you've seen those people who like will tw- after one of these hearings they'll tweet all those people who mocked the idea that this was a coup. They're being awfully silent right now. Well, because <laughs> Trump Trump threw the ketchup, therefore yeah, exactly. It's like what are we supposed to do? Yeah. It's because we're not watching it. Because Heinz so, Gate. Wait the time. Heinz Gate.
2: I mean, I have watched some of it. There actually are some potentially interesting comp- uh, aspects to this this hearing. It's just maybe, just as theater. It's weird though because it's so. It's it's a scripted and choreographed. Like it's not a real hearing. It's not a hearing as you would watch any other hearing. It's no. they're all like, like acting. Yeah. Uh, and it's very bizarre in its sort of tone. That. Uh, but anyway. Well, there's you know, no
0: there's no opposition either. It's all. There's no one presenting the other side from the Republicans. It's a complete, it's a lot like what you described in NATO, just like a complete Potemkin village.
2: Yeah. I mean, but anyway, you know, so it was ironic for me. And maybe I should stop noticing irony because it can get to be a bit much in my old age. But um,
0: you should put more things in air quotes.
2: (laughs) Yeah. But I'm at this NATO summit, right? All the rhetoric around the purported significance of this summit is so inflated to the point that, you know, civilization as we know it is hanging in the balance based on the outcome at this summit. And I even, I even have the strategic, the full strategic document.
0: That's in, not in by Paul Mason. That's by what NATO.
2: <laughs> no. Maybe he ghost wrote it. Um, talking about just the indispensability of, of NATO and like using the most you know, kind of florid possible language to to emphasize the just the, the utter paramount importance of what was going on in Madrid this week. And then you flick on any U.S. media coverage and it's all about what Donald Trump may or may not have done a year and a half ago. Yeah. I mean, Joe Biden is getting less coverage right now in the media as the current president than Donald Trump as the former president even as Joe Biden is supposedly leading this grand military alliance that's going to defend the last frontier of democracy in Ukraine. And oh, by the way, open up a new frontier against China. So it's not just that they're ignoring the NATO summit per se. They're ignoring supposedly what was the biggest, most consequential innovation of this NATO summit, which was more or less to sketch out what could potentially be the the, uh, the framework for how a you know a theoretical third world war could be fought with you know the Pacific theater here and the Atlantic theater here? You know on the on the eve of the NATO summit, the new head of the British Army, who's a real character, gave a speech at this conference um, hosted by RUSI, which is this basically offshoot of the Ministry of Defense in the UK. Who's, uh, when I was in London, I actually was able to gain access to one of their conferences illicitly and found out about this plan that this MP was t- uh, hawking to launch a naval intervention in Odessa that the U uh, that the UK would instigate and then the US would have to follow in their footsteps and support. Doesn't seem to have come to pass yet anyway, but you know, then again, Russia hasn't made an advance really yet against Odessa, so who knows? And it, no, Odessa, as I understand it, is in Novorossiya, which people are saying is like the, the final plan for the territory that Russia <laughs> wants to occupy. I don't know.
0: Well, no, that's I, his base for moving west to taking Berlin.
2: Um, yeah, who but, knows? I mean, it's,
0: the Germans obviously will never forgive Russia for removing the Nazis from power. So they have this fear. Of, anyway, but
2: the, the, the point is that they're opening up this new front, supposedly, that could... Lead, that could like be the, uh, amount to the contours of what a new world war would would look like, and the British Army Chief, at his speech, kind of anticipating NATO, saying he was he delivered the speech because it was tied in with the NATO summit this week, and because the decree would reflect what this Army Chief himself was expressing. He said that the reason why, in his mind, the British Armed Forces need to Ramp up. Why there needs to be more spending on the military in the UK, and why he is now quote mobilizing the army to potentially fight a war in Europe. One of the key reasons why he's doing that is not merely to be able to defeat Russia in Europe, although that's obviously a an element, but it's also because he now believes that the U.S. Ha- the UK has to free up the U.S. to be able to wage war in the Pacific theater simultaneously. So. We, he, he can't make it so that the U.S. is entirely bogged down defending Europe. Europe must must defend itself, even if it means um, fielding an army that has the capacity to potentially wage a ground war against Russia. Um, they can't rely on the U.S. for that, not because the, the you know the Europe is so concerned suddenly about its autonomy, separate and apart from the U.S., but because the U.S. needs to have maximum resources at its disposal to wage this second which were in the second theater that they're somehow anticipating is going to arise simultaneously. So, I mean, it's pretty, pretty jarring and cataclysmic stuff that is being prophesied. And so for this to be almost, I wouldn't say it was totally ignored, but definitely compared to January 6th and Trump's ketchup, up, um, not emphasized nearly as much as you would expect, given the, um, Gravity of the implications of what's being foretold.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you go to the period before February twenty fourth, there was uh, the the OECD, the Organization for your, your um, the, 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 the 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 monitors from the OECD um, were charting thousands and thousands of violations in. The Donbass region, mostly by Ukraine. There was obviously an escalation taking place. And it, you know anyone who criticized NATO, who was a, a critic of NATO, who said uh, there is not going to be a Russian invasion, I don't think it's going to happen, they were the ones who got called out onto the mat after Russia did invade. But no one who actually helped create the context or support the context that drove the the invasion or the Russian policy. No one who supported Maidan and all of the escalations, all of the attacks on the people in Donetsk and Lugansk, none of them have faced any accountability. And what happened really, what I saw within the Western press was that when Russia invaded, reality kind of crashed through, but it was a reality they had not wanted to acknowledge because the West... And specifically, the U.S. always thought it could continue to escalate against Russia and nothing would happen. There would never be a reaction. And they were stunned that Russia did this. Now that they're losing or the Ukraine, which is essentially synonymous with U.S. power, the Ukrainian military. And as we now know, Canadian special forces are on the ground. CIA officers are on the ground. It's a real uh, it's it's almost a direct military intervention. Now that they're losing The Western press doesn't want to talk about, acknowledge this reality anymore, which stunned it so much, along with the economic reality of Russian oil uh, being taken off the table. There was clearly no plan. I mean, we should show the video, unless anyone, I'm sure everyone has seen it, but we should show the video of uh, the hot mic moment with um, Macron and Biden, where it really highlights how ill-prepared the entire western leadership class was for this reality to crash through i had it teed up here we go i mean this is a remarkable exchange they they obviously have no plan i mean the strategic concept michael that you're highlighting right there it looks to me just like a bunch of boilerplate and and nothing that's actually actionable or workable in the real world. Here's Biden and Joan.
3: There's Jake Sullivan. Excuse me. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, I, think, uh, I with your
2: advice I have to complete goal uh, and uh, hope for increasing the production of uh new So uh, I got think it's only two things. One, I'm at the maximum
4: maximum what he claimed and this is my commitment second told me calling to us that the Saudis can increase a little bit
2: but 150 a little bit more and they they don't have huge capacities at this before six months time the last one the the very the very last point is about what we do in the Russian Oh, okay. yeah. Thank you. Thank
0: you. we getting And th- there are so many layers to that exchange. Sorry if I if there was an echo there. I didn't actually uh, hit mute. But there's so many layers to that exchange. I mean, Macron clearly sees that Biden is being followed by cameras, so he stops Biden because he wants to be on camera making this statement. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't choose a transcribed or subtitled clip to show what he was saying, but he was basically. Telling Biden, I spoke to the Emiratis and I spoke to the Saudis, who obviously Biden is probably speaking to, although I don't know if he remembers his conversations. And they're unable to increase oil output in order to reduce the fuel and energy crisis that Europe is facing after taking Russian oil off the market. Finland gets most of its oil from Russia. Germany gets most of its natural gas from Russia and so on and so on. So he's using the opportunity to put pressure on Biden And implicitly telling Biden, you need to increase domestic capacity uh, to offset the losses because we're doing this for you. And Jake Sullivan standing there, head of Biden's NSC, and what he should have done if he had any skill at all. And this is the guy who ran Hillary Clinton's campaign, maybe ran it into the ground, is to say, shut the hell up. Like, we're not going to talk about this right now because the cameras are around. So Biden's now in a corner. Thanks to Macron. Brilliant move by Macron. But it also a tacit admission that they had no idea what they were doing prior to February 24th when they were pushing Russia.
2: Yeah. Jake Sullivan was in the front row at Biden's press conference at the NATO summit. And I tried to, you know, once the press conference was over, I tried to rush over and see if i could get a question in, but they slink away so fast i mean you'd think that these guys would have the courage or their convictions maybe they would mix it up and you know engage in liberal democracy that they love touting and have a free exchange of ideas with the media but you know they, no they they run away as quickly as possible i guess maybe, maybe on a closing note yeah. um i just want to Throw out a thought that I've been toying with, which is that I think people might underestimate the personal conviction and zeal of Joe Biden pers- uh, in why it is that American policy is headed in the trajectory that it is. Um, you know, Biden, however decrepit his mind might be, however much cognitive capacity he's lost, um, I think he still retains this overriding belief in uh, you know the cause of ukraine broadly construed and you and he's had this cause at the top of his agenda for decades going in the senate i mean he, joe biden was P- bill clinton's point man um the kosovo <clears throat> intervention yeah. in 1999 yeah. there was a i read an anecdote about how you know when Bill Clinton was mulling over whether to launch that NATO intervention in '99. He invited Biden on Air Force One. They flew around and had you know a heart to heart, and Biden really went a long way in convincing uh, Clinton to um, to do this, notwithstanding whatever political problems he was having with impeachment and wag the dog and all this. Anyway, the point being that this does seem to have been a driving impetus in biden's career and it probably contributed to why he was given the portfolio of ukraine under obama yeah there might have been a corrupt element of the of it too where they're getting uh payoffs through uh hunter biden's seat on the charisma board and whatnot but i i think it would be a mistake to downplay or underestimate the, the actual ideological component too and that's maybe best exemplified now where biden goes to nato And reiterates, in a message that he knows is going to be delivered instantaneously back to the American public, that they're going to have to take a lot of economic pain because his ideological investment in this cause is just so important. And so he's actually seeming to be willing to take the political hit, meaning take the economic downturn, take the inflation, the the food shortages, whatever, because he actually does have a principled view in the, like the, the sacrosanct necessity I mean, of seeing this cause through to its end. I don't know. Maybe theory. that's wrong, that's, but I think it's
0: possible. That's one workable theory. The other theory is that they just don't, they never had a plan for this and they're completely incompetent and that Biden never thought and his people never thought that Russia would actually call their bluff and retaliate. Uh, and here we but, are.
1: People this, been, this has been their project since, you know, the Obama administration, where Biden helped oversee. He was the point man, along with Victoria Nuland, or, or so the point people, in uh, the coup of 2014. And after the coup, 2014, he was the main guy. He went to Ukraine a number of times, spoke before the parliament. And, you know, the irony of him asking people to sacrifice their livelihoods, higher gas prices, global hunger when his own family has profited so handsomely off of his own pet project in Ukraine when his son when his son Hunter got that board seat. So they just don't think they don't think in normal terms. They feel entitled to pillage entire entire countries to provoke Russia. And as Max says, they don't think that Russia will ever retaliate. I mean, this is nothing new. I have the clip here, Max, of Adam Schiff from two years ago when Trump was impeached for briefly pausing some weapons. To Ukraine while, simultane, while simultaneously asking Ukraine to help investigate Joe Biden's alleged corruption there, and well,
0: what, what did Adam Schiff say? Well, my let's favorite put it put it Trump tweet of all time, by the way,
1: was Adam shit. But let's just uh... so this is this is Adam Schiff. You know, two years ago, two years before Russia invaded, you have to push play.
0: That's his new the United
2: States aids Ukraine and her people. So that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. The United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to
0: fight Russia here.
2: And remember, Aaron, this that logic was essentially codified by the text of the, of the articles impeachment of impeachment for the first Trump impeachment. Because remember, the logic was that Trump had betrayed the nation yes. on account of. I forget the exact wording now, but giving some sort of aid and comfort to what would have to be the enemy, right? So it, it also was undermining the, our... It also was, Russia wasn't this permanent enemy.
1: But, but it also was undermining our national security. So yeah. somehow, because Trump paused some weapons sales to Ukraine, that that and undermined, no shipments were
2: actually ever delayed. But. No, exactly. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. And so and so the point about the Adam Schiff uh, uh, statement where he says that we aid Ukraine so that we can fight Russia over there. And so we don't have to fight them here. Well, then it's obvious if you don't want Russia to fight Ukraine over there, don't use Ukraine to fight Russia from here. But that's been the U.S. policy. And yet there's somehow been this shock when Russia finally, after eight years of the Minsk Accords going nowhere, NATO continued to expand. When Biden takes office, Zelensky cracks down on uh, Russia's allies. He bans Russian TV networks. He signs all these cooperation agreements with NATO and the U.S. to further integrate Ukraine into NATO's military architecture. Uh, as Max said, the attacks on the Donbass increased. I have the numbers here. So February 15th, 2022, uh, 41 explosions in the ceasefire areas. This is according to the OSCE monitoring mis- uh, mission. Yeah, I so confused fe- it with the OECD. I was <laughs> I so February 15th, 41 explosions in the ceasefire areas. February 16th, 76 explosions. February 17th, 316 explosions. February 18th, 654 explosions. February 19th, uh, 1,413 explosions. And finally, uh, February 20th and 21st, 2,026 explosions. And February 22nd, 1,484 explosions. And then two days later, Russia invades. So in the period leading up to Russia's invasion, there was a huge amount of ceasefire violations. And the vast majority were happening on the rebel-held side meaning that the ukrainian side was shelling the rebel-held areas which was taken by russia to be a sign of an imminent ukrainian attack and i don't know if that is true or not that ukraine was actually going to attack but russia says that they perceived it that way and certainly the fact that there's this massive increase in attacks does lend some weight to that argument i don't think it proves it but it does lend some weight to it just a just a very quick point and maybe we should wrap up on yeah you know, yeah I, thanks
0: for being so generous yeah. generous with your time michael yeah yeah I, no problem I, you're, I, you're, again I, I, you're on the front lines of a conflict zone you're in the field so we really respect any, you. anything for you fellas <laughs> Thank i just you. want to make a quick point
2: because i i found some pretty interesting history recently because you know when that whole lithuania thing started to flare up where lithuania is cutting off the rail transport between mainland russia and uh kaliningrad it got me to thinking. okay so let's let's just Briefly revisit how Lithuania even ended up in NATO in the first place and then came under this collective security uh, guarantee. And Biden was actually the chief whip in the Senate for ratifying the membership of the Baltic states yep. in 2004 under George W. Bush. He worked directly with Do- George W. Bush in doing this. And the Senate vote actually happened at the peak of the Iraq invasion. So in May 2003 when that fervor was at a fever pitch. And Joe Biden was going around saying, and you can watch his speeches on the floor of the Senate, he was saying that, look, these Baltic states, however small they may be, they're mighty because they're helping us wage the war on terror. So basically he and Bush were of one mind in framing the offering of NATO membership to the Baltic states in particular as a reward for their participation in the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. And so, but then Biden continued on in formulating this logic by saying, look, the trajectory that Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania are on as of today in 2004, we have to pursue this to its full conclusion. And at a certain, at some point down the line, this is him speaking in 2004, you know what other country is going to follow that trajectory joining NATO? Ukraine. And Biden, I checked, Biden was the only senator who even mentioned Ukraine at that point in 2004. Like, it wasn't really a live issue. Yet for Biden, it was. So that's why I'm kind of increasingly disposed to suspect that there's something unique to Biden's kind of worldview where this has been central for some, whatever ideological reason, for a long time. And it's making it so that he's more uh, implacable than maybe the average politician might in uh, rejecting the idea that the U.S. policy might uh, change course in... Ukraine today because it you know it really does go back deep with it.
1: But what's it's amazing about Biden presiding over the expansion of NATO to the Baltic states was that in 1997, and I have the clip here max if you want if you want to play it, he had warned that expanding NATO to the well, Baltic states is the one thing that could be done to provoke a war with Russia.
0: Yeah. Let's uh let Michael go now and uh then we'll play the
1: clip and wrap up if that's all
0: right. If you want to stay, you
1: can hang I'll, out. I mean
0: I'll stay a little bit of random. Okay. S- okay <laughs> cool.
1: You're a trooper, Mike. Okay, one second.
0: He speaks really clearly in these. It's odd. I
2: think the one place where the greatest consternation would be caused in the short term for admission, having nothing to do with the merit and preparedness of the countries to come in, would be to admit the Baltic states now in terms of NATO-Russian, U.S.-Russian relations. And if there was ever anything that was going to tip the balance, were it to be tipped in terms of a vigorous and hostile reaction, I don't mean military, in Russia, it would be that. So the way I look at the calculus here, yeah. I think. And then, and then you know, later on, all these countries, the Baltic states, Bulgaria, Romania, though they were all in the same class of NATO expansion in, in 4 they're all jostling to prove how loyal they are to the U.S. in waging the war on terror and actually in that same group in terms of competing to demonstrate their loyalty to the u.s was ukraine ukraine was the number three largest military in the coalition of the willing during the iraq war only after the u.s and the uk so i mean basically there was this this transactional thing where they're saying look we're supporting you in the iraq war then we expect a reward on the back end, which is the U.S. expediting NATO membership. And Joe Biden
0: was integral in acceding to that. Well, and and another point is uh, to consider Biden's representing the emerging trend of liberal internationalism, which is essentially synonymous with neoconservatism, in my view, as a counterweight to what it been a not necessarily dominant, but highly influential stream of thinking in U.S. foreign policy circles prior to the Clinton administration and during the Cold War, which is realism. Uh, You could consider Henry Kissinger to be an icon of realism, but also uh, James Baker, the Secretary of State to George H.W. Bush. And when the wall came down and Ukraine was declared independent of the Soviet Union, its own independent republic, George H.W. Bush delivered the chicken Kiev speech, where if you watch it today, he warned about everything that is taking place internally inside Ukraine, Uh, nationalism, civil war, and massive corruption, conflict. That speech completely contrasts with every message Biden delivered in the 90s and going forward into the 2000s. And um, now Biden is sort of in the driver's seat, although he can't really ride a bike.
2: Yeah, I mean, Biden is not a realist. And if there was a realist in the White House right now, you know, I think things will look pretty different. So I just think, you know, it, yeah, it would it's, look like it's, a, it's a folly to underestimate the amount, incredible amount of latitude that a president has, especially in the realm of foreign policy. And, you know, for better or worse, largely worse at this point, U.S. foreign policy does, I think, reflect Biden's sincerely held beliefs.
1: I wouldn't be surprised if there's a connection between the countries in Eastern Europe who operated secret prisons on behalf of the CIA and NATO. Lithuania joined NATO in two thousand four. Well, Poland,
0: there are tons of black sites in Poland. It's a yeah, but connection. what I'm saying is,
1: what I'm saying is, like Lithu- I wonder if Lithuania getting to join NATO in two thousand four was a reward for going along with the secret prisons as well
0: remember what donald rumsfeld called lithuania and the baltic states he called them new europe and contrasted them with old europe that wasn't right. going along with the war yeah by
1: There's the way max, max on the
2: last stream i was on with you and in uh, anya in march i said that you know because i had been to poland recently in this place yeshif where they're constructing basically a new military u.s military outpost i said a, bu- a number of people had told me that the plan here you know whatever the outcome of the ukraine war was that this was going to become ramstein 2.0 in poland and lo and behold biden at the nato summit announces that that base is now permanent and it's going to be expanded and it's going to be you know the home of this particular army unit so that came to pass
0: well democracy is being defended and um you know, these, these are encouraging times that, that, that right there, that base is a base of the, the liberal world order. And um, anyway, thank you again for, for your time. I wanted to um, address, we got a lot of comments about your chest hair, Michael, and I wanted to address that real quickly by saying that at the gray zone, we only show contempt to, mainstream media men who shave their chests because that's become a, a trend and that we welcome and celebrate chest hair here as our uh, daily act of personal reclamation.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I can only assume the commenter is jealous by the way, one uh, definitely a, uh, I heard a theory on Twitter that the reason Erdogan called on me is because he saw my body hair and mistook me for a Turk. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, shared, shared cool. seems, values. Seems, seems plausible. Seems plausible. Shared follicles. I mean, the proof is in the eating. That's all I can say.
2: <laughs> I'm going to put that on a t shirt. A uh, Zelensky muscle t shirt.
0: Well, thank, thanks, everyone, for all the super chats. Thanks for the running commentary. The, our chats, the chats are always super amusing and uh, informative. Can I
1: correct one, Max? Someone said I wax. I do not wax. I just want to correct that. I, I'm right. just efficient in body here. I, I could use some mics. He I'm all. I'm time. all natural, baby. <laughs> and I need. I'm gonna <laughs> actually
0: have trans. I'm gonna have transplants from Michael's chest hair to my <laughs> eyebrows because I. Have yeah, let me on. get on that. Aaron,
2: <laughs> I I have plenty to spare in case you're. Thank you. Thank genuinely you. Genuinely interested.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thanks everyone uh, for for joining. We're gonna be broadcasting live next week in green muscle teas from Snake Island, so stay tuned for that. Uh, Slava Raytheon, and uh, we'll see you in Kiev.
1: peace peace everybody thank you Michael
0: bye
2: bye